Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for the show comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research process uncovers emerging trends. Then their technology curates relevant stocks into themes. Choose from over 40 themes, buy all the stocks in a theme as is, or customize to better fit your investing goals, all in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I think about the mindset of a good scientist as involving simple values like preferring humility over pride and curiosity over closure. And that means you don't let your ideas become your identity. That when you have an opinion, you treat that as a hypothesis to be tested. That's Adam Grant. He's a professor of management and psychology at Wharton Business School. Last month, he published the book, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know, which quickly became a number one New York Times bestseller. Grant is an organizational psychologist, which means that he applies experiments and psychological concepts to the workplace and to our institutions. His previous books, Give and Take and Originals, shifted how millions of people view their relationships to work, life, and success. He also co-wrote Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg's powerful memoir, Option B. There's been a lot to rethink over the last year, from confronting COVID to pursuing racial justice to positioning our own politics. Grant has a whole lot of ideas about how we can best rethink ourselves and one another. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes from Twitter user NowMD, who asks, Hey Preet, with the recent statement by Michael Sherwin raised seditious conspiracy charges, how likely are we to see those brought against at least the ringleaders? Of course, that's a reference to the former acting U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C., Michael Sherwin, who now has returned to service as an assistant U.S. attorney in Florida. Well, what I can tell you is seditious conspiracy charges are not common, and they're tough to bring. I think the last time a seditious conspiracy charge was brought was in 2010, and they often fail, and there are issues with the First Amendment and the intersection of protest and sedition. So there are issues, it's an uphill battle frequently, but even though it's uncommon, the events of January 6th are also not common. One might say they were really unprecedented. And part of the, the issue, I think, for lay people in thinking about seditious conspiracy is when the word sedition rears its ugly head, some people will think that it means sort of a massive undertaking, the overthrow of the entire government, but that's not what the law says. The law, which is set forth at Title 18 U.S. Code 2384, says essentially, if two or more persons conspire to overthrow, put down, or to destroy by force the government of the United States, that can be a seditious conspiracy, and that sounds like a mammoth undertaking. But the statute also says, 
quote, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law in the United States. What happened on January 6th during the insurrection? A group of people tried to prevent, hinder, or delay what? The counting of the electoral votes in the Congress, which was the execution of any law. So if you apply the statutory language and you look at the tapes and you hear the testimony of people who were present, especially members of Congress and others, and you, you heard and saw people saying, hang Mike Pence, stop the votes, where's Nancy? It seems that the statute kind of fits. So the question will be, if prosecutors think that the seditious conspiracy statute is applicable, to whom is it applicable? And it seems like, just given the evidence, that it should be applicable to some. So what's the significance of Michael Sherwin, the former acting U.S. attorney in D.C., saying on 60 Minutes, quote, I personally believe the evidence is trending towards that and probably meets those elements, end quote. Well, he has been in some position to know what the evidence is, including evidence that's not available to us. The wrinkle here, though, is a lot of people, former prosecutors, and including the judge in D.C., are not happy with Mr. Sherwin's remarks. Generally, prosecutors do not go on air and in the media to talk about cases that have not yet been brought and make references to evidence against people who have not yet been charged or who have not been charged with particular statutory violations, which is the case here. In fact, the judge called in lawyers from DOJ, admonished them, and it's been reported that Mr. Sherwin has been referred to the Office of Professional Responsibility within the Justice Department. This question comes from Twitter user LaGreca underscore Tina, who asks, can you address Sidney Powell's latest request to have her case dismissed because her attorneys argued that, quote, reasonable people would not accept such statements as fact, but view them only as claims that await testing by the courts through the adversary process, end quote. Well, you're, of course, referring to the former lawyer for Donald Trump, who, and also Michael Flynn, by the way, but with respect to Donald Trump, tried to get him some success in overturning election results in various states around the country in 2020, failed in every single instance. She's been sued now by Dominion, a voting software company, for all sorts of outlandish allegations she made about Dominion and about Dominion's deliberate efforts to swing the election to Joe Biden from Donald Trump. And yes, lots of legal experts have been raising their eyebrows at this interesting defense, which is basically to say, what I said, Sidney Powell was saying, what I said was so outlandish and so crazy, no reasonable person would have taken it seriously, no reasonable person would have accepted these as statements of fact, and she's hiding from what was her actual intent in the first place. The implication of the defense, by the way, is that lots and lots of people who did believe her and who wanted to believe her and who ate it up are inherently unreasonable. Those include Donald Trump and millions and millions of his supporters. If you think back to how Sidney Powell conducted herself, she was very specific in her allegations. She was not engaged in parody. She was trying to convince not just ordinary people in the country, but also the courts themselves in state after state that her allegations about Dominion were absolutely true, were absolutely factual. So it is a little odd to hear her say now that reasonable people would not have taken her seriously. So I think it's fair to say that legal experts think that this is not a viable defense in the defamation suit. But putting aside who succeeds or fails in the defamation suit, I think there's a bigger picture question here and issue. And that is Sidney Powell and others who over and over again propagated lies, specific and general, in state after state after state, all contributed in some way to the big lie and to the perception on the part of lots of people in America that the election had been stolen from Donald Trump and, in a sense, caused and prompted the insurrection on January 6th. And for that, 
she and many other people should be ashamed. This question comes from Twitter user Air Matson, who asks, let's go deep, Nebraska or Tunnel of Love? Hashtag Springsteen. All right, so both are great albums, and you will not be surprised to hear me say that there are very few not great albums by the boss, but I, I got to go with Nebraska. Songs like Atlantic City, Reason to Believe, Highway Patrolman, in my estimation, make it a better album than Tunnel of Love. If you disagree, let me know, and I will respect your opinion. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for the show comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research process uncovers emerging trends. Then their technology curates relevant stocks into themes. Choose from over 40 themes, buy all the stocks in a theme as is, or customize to better fit your investing goals, all in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. My guest this week is Adam Grant the Saul P. Steinberg Professor of Management and a Professor of Psychology at Wharton Business School. We talk about Grant's new book, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know, which provides advice for how to encourage innovation and open debate in business, politics, and even in how you root for your favorite sports team. Adam Grant, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Preet. I'm excited to be here, and I actually mean that. You do. You mean everything you say. You're you're that kind of guy, right? I hope so. No, you you fall into a rare category of returning guest on Stay Tuned. Not only do people love listening to you, not only are you a returning guest, but you are in a small group of podcast guests whose episodes we have re-aired when we have gone on break. I didn't know that. That's a huge Which honor. A and now compliment. I know I know now I know why I I get notifications from time to time from your fans. I'm like that was that was a couple was of years months ago. ago. <laughs> I don't even remember what we talked about. I remember I think vaguely. we ran it we ran it during a Christmas, you know, winter break because we thought people could listen to it again and and new listeners would enjoy it. That's our high praise to former guests and current guests. I'm honored. 
So you've written another book, which I don't know, all your books go to number one. Uh, it's a great book. We're going to talk about the concepts in it at some length, because I think uh, you, you might be surprised to learn that these are some of the issues that I've been thinking about, even though I used to be a prosecutor. The book is called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. But as we were, as we were mentioning before we started taping, your subheading actually on the cover of your book appears above the title. Are you rethinking the way covers are supposed to be organized? I don't know. Should I be? I, I love how linear you are, Preet. You're, you're a man that's after a my rational heart. <laughs> I don't think that's a compliment. That I'm, is, is calling someone linear, is that an insult? I don't think so. I think it's, oh. I mean, it, for me, it's almost a synonym for logical. I like logic. You do, but you, you say many times in your book that maybe that's not enough. And, and you have been, what's the, what's the phrase that people have used with you? Oh, one of my own former students called me a logic bully. A logic bully, yes, a logic bully. And so part of, don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but part of the thesis of your book is that maybe you shouldn't be a logic bully and that a, a way to get other people to change their minds about things is not, and you use my old profession as a, uh, you know, a foil, is not to prosecute the case. Can you explain before we get into... I have a lot of examples that I want to ask you about because I think they're relevant to things going on in the world, your, your way of thinking about persuasion. My first question is, why is it that people hold on to their views so stridently? I think one of the big problems is that being wrong is, in, at least in, in our culture, a threat to your intelligence and your competence. And so a lot of people want to insist that they're right. And that leads to many of us to think like preachers, where we decide we've already found the truth and we're trying to proselytize it. And like prosecutors, where we have to win our case, and that means proving the other person wrong. And what that does is it gives us the comfort of conviction. It protects us against the discomfort of doubt. It turns our ideas into our identities. And it allows us to walk around feeling righteous, even when we might not be right. So the negative effect of that is manifold, but one effect of that, as you write, uh, is that it, it causes people to be less innovative, right? If they have a particular idea about something or a conclusion about something, whether it's in business or in politics or in a relationship, and they persist in that view, they're not open to thinking in a new way, and that can be devastating in many ways, including in business, correct? Yeah, there's a name for this trap in, in my world of organizational psychology. It's called escalation of commitment to a losing course of action. Right. So how, how do you tell the difference? Maybe this is an unfair, an unfair question. Success begets success, right? And so isn't it natural for a business person, and I'm going to use a particular business example that you recite in the book that I've talked about also and, and thought about a lot, but doesn't it stand to reason you're an intelligent person and you've started on a course with your business and it's gone very well and customers like your product. And let's even say as an initial matter, your product was an innovation itself. It was a new thing that didn't exist in the world before, and people like it and people buy it and you get a huge market share. Then someone comes along and says, you know, you might want to think about changing everything about your product. Isn't it natural to say, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm the innovator. I'm the genius. And I'm going to continue, and I'll, I'll now invoke the example, I'm going to continue to make the BlackBerry the same way that we've made it before, and I'm not worried about the iPhone at all. Discuss. <laughs> it's natural. That doesn't mean it's effective. Is it sometimes effective? Like, how do you know when it is and when it isn't? Well, I think in an ideal world, what you're doing is you're thinking more like a scientist. So I think part of what Mike Lazaridis and others at BlackBerry got wrong was 
they preached the virtues of the keyboard. Uh, they prosecuted all the problems with the touchscreen. I mean, they were also convinced that <laughs> everybody wanted this device for work emails. Why would you want a whole computer in your pocket for home entertainment? That doesn't make any sense. And I think what a good scientist would do, I, I like to, to offer <laughs> thinking like a scientist as an alternative to preaching and prosecuting. And I don't mean that you need to go out and buy a microscope or a telescope. Oh, good. Yeah, you're, you're in the clear. You, I, I would like it, Preet, if you walked around in a white lab coat from time to time. I would get a kick out of that, personally. No, I, I do that at home. I've been doing that during the pandemic quite a bit. Awesome. I hope you have a few test tubes in your pocket, too, <laughs> just to, to complete the look. But when I think about being a scientist, I, I think about the mindset of a good scientist as involving simple values, like preferring humility over pride and curiosity over closure. And that means you don't let your ideas become your identity. That when you have an opinion, you treat that as a hypothesis to be tested. So let's, you know, let's, let's take a couple examples of this. One is there's a brilliant experiment that was done recently with startup founders in Italy. And they go through a three to four month crash course in learning how to start and run their own business. What they don't know is that half of them have been assigned to a control group that gets the regular version of the course. The other half have been randomly assigned to think like scientists. They don't get any extra information. They're just told, hey, when you come up with a strategy for your company, it's just a theory. When you talk to customers and interview them, that's a great way to develop specific hypotheses. And then when you launch your product or service, that's an experiment to test whether your hypotheses are true or false. And it turns out just being randomly assigned to think like a scientist over the next year leads those founders to bring in more than 40 times the average revenue of the control group. And the main reason is they're more than twice as likely to pivot. When they're taught to think like scientists and their product launch doesn't work, they start to look for reasons why they might be wrong, not just prove that they must have been right. Uh, they listen to ideas that make them think hard, not just the ones that made them feel good. And they actually consider feedback from people who challenge their thought process, not just the ones who agreed with their conclusions. And I think this was completely missing at BlackBerry. Technically, we should say RIM, right? But right. I always think of it as BlackBerry. The crazy thing is, he's a scientist. Wasn't the CEO? I mean, he is a scientist, yeah. So, so when you say, think like a scientist, that means more than be a scientist, <laughs> right? It does. I mean, he, right, Lazaridis is a brilliant electrical engineer. Uh, he reinvented the way that we communicate, you know, helped to launch the smartphone revolution. The problem was he was great at rethinking other people's products. He was not willing to rethink his baby or the market for it. And I mean, this is the crazy part to me, Preet, is I think BlackBerry was valued at around $70 billion. And that was still the only product that they made. <laughs> when you're on the top of your game, you don't want to fall victim to the fat cat syndrome and rest on your laurels. That is the perfect time to rethink because you have the resources and the slack and the flexibility to reinvent yourself. And usually leaders don't start doing it until it's too late. What's interesting is, based on my own anecdotal experience, I had a BlackBerry because that's what the Department of Justice issued people, you know, some years ago. Even when DOJ moved to the iPhone, or I obviously, in my personal life, could have bought an iPhone, I was wedded to the keyboard of the BlackBerry, which obviously the CEO thought was the great, you know, innovation. So did I. Because I could, I could, without looking at the keyboard, I could send, you know, perfectly spelled multiple sentence emails without error. Now, now I think I spent a quarter of my life backspacing to try to send an email or a text on the iPhone. But it was not wrong for the CEO to think, you know what, there are lots of people, and I'm sure they 
they weren't just blind, right? They must have been doing surveys and they must have been doing focus groups, presumably. And there was a, you know, a large group of very, very, I think you you point this out, a large group of very loyal people who liked the BlackBerry, but it was a finite, you know, group of customers. It was a finite population. And what they gave up was, and tell me if I have this right, they gave it a multi-billion person population by not going to the touchscreen. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I think yeah, they were they were focused on power users in business and government mostly. And yeah, I guess I, I was a power user. I guess so. I mean, I, I still miss the BlackBerry keyboard. I can't believe there's still not an, an iPhone with a physical keyboard that you could type on. But that is another conversation. I learned something from your book also. Uh, I presume this is still true, even though you probably wrote this a few months ago. Is the BlackBerry making a comeback? The technology has been licensed for a comeback. I think you can buy one. I actually got an email from a reader in Canada recently saying, hey, you should come to Toronto. I just got a new BlackBerry. I was pretty excited. And then I realized (laughs) I'm still not going anywhere. I'm probably not going to be crossing the border anytime soon. I mean, the problem was, and the reason that I ultimately switched and and don't want to go back is this other sort of myopia that the BlackBerry people had. And that is they didn't have a good browser. And if I wanted to, you know, look, if someone sent me an article, emailed me an article or a video or something, it was really not a pleasant experience to to look at that or read that on the BlackBerry. I, I had an iPad and I would go over to the iPad to play it. And that's not convenient to have to use two devices. And so they had sort of blinders on when it came to that also. So many missed opportunities. In, in some ways, the biggest one was for a while, they were dominating messaging. Remember BlackBerry Messenger? Yeah. Like that was, I mean, that's basically WhatsApp. So par- part of the problem here, you talk about again and again, and I want to know how you think about it and what the balance is, because everything in life is a balance. What the difference between confidence is and overconfidence, and what the difference is between insecurity and humility. Like, how do you how do you think about those concepts so that other people can think about them and how they conduct themselves in in work, in business, in friendships, etc. Well, I think going into <laughs> going into writing, think again. I thought that the perfect place to be was to have your confidence match your competence. That's the definition of healthy confidence, is you have a realistic appraisal of your skills, your knowledge, your abilities. So, but and that includes, so if you suck at something, your thought was you should be self-aware of your suckiness. Exactly. Yeah, you should know how terrible you are. Okay, so self-awareness, good or bad. Yes, and now, now I've rethought that. You have? I have. I think it's actually healthier to slightly underestimate yourself. Oh, so but if you so if you stink at something, you should actually think you stink a lot. Maybe a little. A little more <laughs> than you actually do. Right. And why is that? Okay, so the reason for that is some research that a former doctoral student of ours, Basima Tufik, did. She's now an MIT professor. And she took on imposter syndrome. So maybe maybe just to set the stage a little bit. Yeah, explain what imposter syndrome is. Because I think I ha- I I don't maybe have that at the moment, but I definitely have had that in the past. Oh, I can I can definitely give it to you if you want it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, no, I always have it and I have it still, but I had it in the most pronounced way. When I first became U.S. attorney, I'm thinking clearly there's been some error because this to me was the, was the best legal job in the world uh, or at least the country. What business did I have being in this job? Is that, is that sort of 
accurately describe imposter syndrome? That is imposter syndrome in a nutshell. And if we talk to your colleagues, they would say, Preet is, is super qualified. He's exactly the right candidate for the job, and your confidence is below your competence. And we could, we could flip that and say, okay, the opposite of that is the armchair quarterback syndrome. Where <laughs> people who don't know any, yeah, I've dealt with a lot of those too. And, and, who, and who are they? Just define them. I mean, you, some people would say that you got fired by one of them. <laughs> right. But the, Someone the who doesn't know a lot, but, is very, <laughs> yeah. but has a lot of certitude about that. But imposter syndrome, you know, it's a fancy term. Isn't that simply just humility? You know, all the U.S. attorneys at our first gathering uh, after Obama became the president, we were addressed by somebody who talked about imposter syndrome and praised it as a virtue. And said, if you don't, from time to time, given the authority you have and the power you have and the prestige you have in these jobs that are very, very hard to come by, if you don't have an imposter-like feeling from time to time, what an asshole you must be. <laughs> Is that fair? Yeah, I, th I think you just hit on the critical distinction, the, from time to time. Basima's question was, why do we have to make this into a syndrome? Like you're diagnosed <laughs> with some kind of disorder. This is abnormal. It's it's pathological. When in fact, all of us have those thoughts from time to time. Uh, they're common and they can even be nutritious in the sense that, yeah, I think it is humility. A lot of people hear humility and they think, oh, that means you have low self-esteem or, you know, you're too meek. You, you don't really, you don't think you're worth anything. If you go back to the Latin roots, humility translates to from the earth. It's about being grounded, right? Know, knowing that you're flawed and fallible and you might have strengths, but you have weaknesses too. And the cool thing about the data on imposter syndrome, so Basima studied investment professionals and medical professionals. And instead of making it into a syndrome, she just measured it as kind of ongoing doubt, right? Like, am I, am I really as good as other people think I am? And she measured how frequently people had those doubts and there were not any consistent costs of feeling those doubts more often. There were benefits. Uh, investment professionals who questioned their abilities more often made better investing decisions. Medical professionals who felt like imposters more often uh, actually listened more carefully to patients and offered them more respect and compassion. And I think what uh, you've lived this, so I want to hear your take on it. But my, my read of the data is that when you feel a little bit like an imposter, you think you have something to prove, so you work harder, and you also know you have something to learn, and so you work smarter. Oh, uh, that part of your book probably resonated more than any other section. Is that is that a compliment of that part of the book or a critique of the rest? It's, it's I'm, a, I'm hearing it, your inner prosecutor. No, it's no, it, it is a compliment to all of it, but it resonated with me because I saw myself in that. I've I've written about that in my own book. Uh, you know, I talk about the occasions where I had, you know, deep concerns about whether or not I had what it takes to do the job, roaring self doubt, but also quite a bit of confidence, and hopefully you don't have one or the other for too long a period at the same time, right? It's, it's this from time to time aspect of it. If you think you're right about everything, that's arrogance, that's your enemy. If you think you're wrong about everything, that's paralysis and that's also, that's also your enemy. That makes a lot of sense to me. Well, if, if, if I were a fan of puns, I would say you just did justice to, <laughs> to the analysis in your book. But, but on self-awareness, I think we, we think very similarly to this, except I didn't really understand how to talk about this stuff until I read the way you described it. There are people that I have supervised in life, right, um, in particularly the U.S. Attorney's Office, who were not self-aware. And I used to think lack of self-awareness was a terrible problem because there were people who thought that they should be promoted, uh, you know, very rapidly 
and no other rational person would have agreed with them. Um, and I had this from time to time, right? There were people who thought, I'm the best prosecutor in this area. I should be the supervisor. And a survey of, you know, eight people who had dealt with them said, no, they would be terrible at that. And they had good qualities, but they had other qualities that prevented them from becoming supervisors. And they didn't have self-awareness. on I kept thinking that's terrible. And this maybe is just a, a restatement of what you said a few minutes ago. And then there were also people who were excellent, you know, really, really amazing leaders, lawyers, tremendous judgment, who when I promoted them were surprised at the promotion. Yeah. So they lacked self-awareness, but in the other direction. But that's okay, because that's humility. Yeah, I, th I think that's okay. And ideally, it turns into confident humility, where you're secure enough in your strengths to acknowledge your weaknesses. And you're comfortable saying, I don't know yet, but I think I could figure it out. And what that allows you to do is not only to recognize your limitations, but actually to overcome them. You said something else that I agree with uh -oh. and that I've, that I've thought about. <laughs> so I know you have to rethink everything if I'm agreeing with stuff. Well, this idea of innovation, and because I found this in the sort of staid profession of, of the law, and in particular in law enforcement, where people think they have to be some kind of inventor. Or, you know, you, you talk about science a lot, and, and I don't know if that frightens people. But lots of innovations come from just thinking about something a different way, opening yourself up to something. The example I use in my own book is something that I maybe overly obsess over, and that is how long it took for people to figure out that the best way to get ketchup out of a bottle is to just turn it upside down and put the cap on the bottom and take advantage of gravity. And that didn't take a Nobel Prize winning scientist. That didn't take a PhD. I don't know who's responsible for that, but do you agree there are innovations like that that people can engage in in every profession, no matter what their level of education is? I, I hope so. Uh, I think... You know, if, I think if the answer is no, we're all in trouble. And one of the, <laughs> so hence the answer must be yes. Yeah, exactly. No, I I think when you know a lot of people when they hear creativity or innovation, they think, well, that's not for me because I'm not a I'm not a breakthrough thinker. I'm not a genius. And the reality is that most innovations are just people taking a second to recognize a problem that others haven't you know haven't defined. And then think about how to solve it. And one of the things that stands in the way is, uh, there's, a, there's a term I love in psychology for this. It's called cognitive entrenchment. And it's when you have such deep experience in a field that you start to take for granted assumptions that need to be questioned. So there's, there's research, for example, on expert bridge players who struggle when you just change the rules a little bit because they don't even realize they have all these assumptions about how to play the game or highly experienced accountants who are actually slower to adapt to new tax laws than novices because they're so used to the way they've always done things. And I, I think, you know, for me, this is a case to say not that we should limit people's expertise or experience, but rather we should constantly be broadening our own so that we don't get trapped in one way of viewing the world. So the power of all this thought and your writing, I think, can be seen when we start talking about real life issues and ideas and how we persuade people and how we get along better in society and in our communities. But just before we get to that, something you wrote has, has sat with me. You write somewhere, and I think you credit a sociologist, Murray Davis, who argued that, quote, when ideas survive, it's not because they're true, it's because they're interesting, end quote. What does that mean? 
it's, this is one of my all-time favorite papers. And yes, it's possible to have favorite sociology papers, even if you're a psychologist. Is that, is that an implicit condemnation of all the other papers that is less interesting? Uh, it's no, it's the opposite. It's <laughs> it's admiration for for Davis's creativity and ingenuity. Okay. okay. Uh, D- Davis, I think, hit on something profound, which is when an idea piques our interest, we pay more attention to it, and we remember it. And he was he was trying to trace why some ideas survive as a, and others don't, and he noticed that marketplaces of ideas are remarkably inefficient. How many years did it take for people to debunk so many of Freud's ridiculous assumptions about the the psychodynamic unconscious? We could have a whole conversation about that. Um, And I I still find myself having to to say, wait a minute, no, I actually like to do experiments and uh, and gather data as opposed to just making things up in my armchair. Uh, But I think that what Davis realized is that when people's curiosity is piqued, they start to take ideas seriously. And they get a, a rush or a jolt of excitement when they discover something that they believed wasn't true. The problem is that only happens with weakly held assumptions. So, you know, when, when somebody tells you, hey, did you know that there's some tyrannosaur species that actually might have had brightly colored feathers? Or <laughs> that Cleopatra wasn't Egyptian? Yeah, or, or how, the, how the moon was formed. Maybe, maybe out of magma rain from the center of the earth? There are some experts who are advancing this as the most compelling theory of where the moon came from. And I'm like, whoa, mind blown, love it. And your point in part is when it's something like that, that people don't have some, you know, central belief system, when people are not invested in some concept, I don't know many people who are fully invested in the way that the moon was formed. They're open and they're curious and they can rethink and they can unlearn what they learned in school that was incorrect. On the other hand, as you write, when a core belief is questioned, we, we tend to shut down rather than open up. And that's the difference between things on, on which people can be persuaded and things on which people cannot be persuaded. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's a great summary. I think one of, the, one of the ways that I've started to see this is <laughs> through the lens of what's called the totalitarian ego. Uh, so I just picture in everybody's mind, you have one of these, I have one of these. There's a mini Kim Jong-un there is. Trying to keep out threatening information, <laughs> just like the real dictator controls the press in North Korea. You know, in the short run, that's comforting, right? It, it allows us to, to not have to admit that we're wrong or to question uh, some of the, the deep-seated beliefs that we've maybe based our lives on. But in the long run, it prevents us from unlearning and rethinking. And it means we stand still while the world around us is changing. So, for example, to pick a real-world example, Does this explain why when people talk about inequality in the country or in the world, and they talk about the existence of bias, unconscious bias, or even structural racism in democratic institutions in the country, that becomes a much harder thing to convince some people of because many people have a core belief that the institutions are good. And they don't like the implication that some people might be either inadvertently or overtly racist. Yeah, you're threatening their belief in a just world. You're also potentially forcing them to re-examine a bunch of choices they made in their lives that they thought were moral, uh, that now you're saying could have been immoral. That's threatening. And then there's also, there's another layer of, of risk that comes into play here, which is some people are not bothered by inequality. Right? They, they believe in meritocracy. 
and they say, look, I'm not interested in equality of outcomes. Stop showing me that certain groups are disadvantaged. What I want to know is, did everybody have an opportunity? And I think, by the way, this is one place where liberals fall far short, is we're always trying to highlight injustice and inequality through outcomes when we should be measuring opportunities if we want to get through to conservatives. And I shouldn't even say we, because I don't, I don't identify particularly as a liberal, uh, although I guess my views are more progressive than they are conservative. But um, this, you know, this, this is a great example for me of, you know, of, of trying to convince people to adopt our values as opposed to trying to explain our ideas in terms of their values. We'll be right back to my interview with Adam Grant after this. Here's something that you describe in your book that, that I've been thinking about. And it goes against a view that I've always had, which is when you're trying to persuade somebody of something, if you have nine reasons, you want to give them all nine reasons because the numerosity of your arguments, that's got to be more persuasive than just having one reason. And, and the experiment that you ran, uh, which is not the greatest stakes in the world, but my re recollection is you were asked by a university to try to come up with you know, a good pitch for people to give money to the university. Yep. Uh, alums to give, you know, donate back to their alma maters. And, and you had two emails. You had a campaign with one email, which suggested that people would help students if they donated to their alma mater and help the school in various ways. And then you had another that suggested, well, people will feel good if you give to your alma mater and you'll get a glow of happy feelings. And both of those email campaigns were successful. And you got about 6.5% of folks to donate. Which sounds like a tiny number, except these were lifetime non-donors who had never given a cent. Right, to the it's kind of amazing. So, so may, you know, maybe some of the language. I wish I could have seen what the language was that was used. But then you say, then you did an email campaign giving both reasons. Hey, here's reason one and reason two. Now give money because two reasons should be better than one. That's been the way I think about the world. And you recite that the donation amount went down to three percent. What gives? Less than half. Yeah, well, let me start by saying I was completely wrong. I went into that experiment thinking we've got one message that says helping others will do good, another that says it'll feel good, and if we combine those, that's a win-win. You can help other people and experience the helper's high or the warm glow of giving or whatever you want to call it. And it completely backfired. We, we did a bunch of follow-up experiments to try to unpack it. And eventually where I landed is there are, I think there are two things that go wrong when we give people too many reasons. And I, I say this as a recovering logic bully, where pre, if I think you're wrong, <laughs> I, I'm going to give you 17 reasons because you know, I just, I want to bombard you with as many data points and as many facts as possible. The first mistake I'm making when I do that, which we saw in our data, is that I'm raising your awareness that a persuasive attempt is occurring. And every extra reason I give you kind of leads you to put your guard up, right? The, the inner dictator comes in and says, wait a minute. Because you know you're being lectured at, at some yeah. point. Or manipulated, right. even right. worse. Right. And I don't, I don't want somebody else to control my beliefs. And that means I either attack back or, or I defend. And then the other issue, which comes out in research on expert negotiators, comparing them to average negotiators, is they use fewer reasons on average. And the explanation there is they're afraid of diluting their argument. That... You know, let's say, Preet, I want to I convince you to shift your view on climate change. If I come in and give you eight reasons and you're resistant to the argument, you're just going to pick the weakest reason and throw out my whole case. 
as, and that's your excuse, right? Like, oh, no, that, that doesn't make any sense. All your arguments are bunk. Whereas if I just give you my two most compelling reasons, it's a lot harder for you to just dismiss them. So I think the argument dilution effect is real. And it's, it's really made me rethink the way that I argue. I, I, there is a big caveat here, which is if the audience is receptive, if they're open to your point of view, or they generally trust you, then the more reasons you give, the more likely they'll be to assume, all right, you must know what you're talking about. I'm on board. But if the audience is skeptical or hostile or defensive in some way, then I think less is actually more. What what do you think? Well, I'm just thinking about my experience as a lawyer in that narrow category of effort. This would be a routine argument on appeals briefs, right? If you're trying to argue that the lower court decision was incorrect and you you have limited space, do you spend your time making all six plausible arguments? And obviously, you order them you know, by priority and, and, and by level of persuasiveness. And the debate would always be, should we just have two arguments, because they're our clearest ones, and leave aside the four weaker arguments? Or you never know if the judge is not going to be smart and what's going to, uh, or the panel of judges is going to be smart enough, and maybe they won't like your two strong arguments, and you don't want to leave anything on the table. Um, I was always of the view that you go with your strongest arguments. But, you know, smart, rational people don't like to do that because they're le- they think they're leaving something behind. Yeah. I, I also wonder if the, if the formal procedure of the courtroom, though, changes this phenomenon a little bit. Because, you know, if you and I are going to have a disagreement or a debate and forget trying to persuade you, I just want to open your mind right, to say, hey, maybe, maybe there are other ideas out there. In, in the courtroom situation... It doesn't have the same, it's not, it's not like the alums of the university. The judge knows that they're being lectured at by the lawyers. You know, it's part of the, it's part of the procedure. They expect arguments to be made. Yes. And you're not trying to sneak up on the judge to open their minds. So maybe more arguments make sense sometimes. I think that's possible. And also, you're not going to get any back and forth there, right? The judges aren't going to tell you that they don't buy your first two, argue, two arguments, which in real life, I would say, okay, that's your rejection, then retreat. You lead with your two strongest points. If those get demolished, then you might have a few others to bring in. Whereas you, you had to put everything on the table at one time, right? Yeah. And so I was thinking about some issues that people debate publicly, uh, like the death penalty, for example, and that's in the news from time to time still. And there are various arguments you can make against the death penalty. Some people who think the death penalty is fine for various reasons also. If you're having a debate in front of, you know, sort of a lay audience, and you're trying to make the argument that the death penalty is not something that the government should do, uh, and maybe this is an unfair question also, do you pick one super persuasive argument? Like, you know, there's been proof that innocent people have been put to death, and there's lots of people on death row who we find out later shouldn't have been on death row. And so it's unfair in that way and try to hammer home that point, is that more likely to change minds? Or if you make that argument and you also argue about deterrence and you also argue about the morality of it, and you also argue you know, for other things, you know, racial disparities, et cetera, what does your work tell us about the best strategy for debating those kinds of issues? That is an excellent question. I'd love to see the data. Honestly, not sure. I think there, there's been a lot of research on uh, on, let's say in this case, we're talking about, you know, sort of <laughs> moral versus logical arguments. And they're different, they're, they're persuasive in different situations and with different people. So the, the upside of the, of the more logical approach, you know, hey, this, this is actually not necessary or effective for deterrence, according to the data that I've read. You know, the advantage of that is you can actually agree on the standards of evidence. 
Um, and that's what I would do first, by the way. I would say, before I even tell you what the data show, talk to me about what the most rigorous study you can imagine is of deterrence. If that's your goal, that's your value. And then I'm going to show you one that's better, uh, that rules out even more alternative explanations. And if we agree on the methods, then we might be able to find some common ground on the conclusions. It's a little bit like the, the Rawlsian veil of, of, of ignorance in the justice world, uh, where you know you, I, I think that for a long time, right, in political philosophy, we've judged the justice of a society by whether you would accept a place in it if you didn't know what your position was. To your, your earlier point on equality, well, here, I want to judge whether a study is valid by whether you would accept the results based on the methods alone. So I would start there, personally. You also have an extended discussion, and I'm reminded of it when you invoke the veil of ignorance in Rawls, because I don't think you use this term, but you talk about the intense rivalry and hatred that exists between Red Sox fans and Yankees fans, right? <laughs> and, and you try to engage in various ways to try to make Red Sox fans hate Yankees fans less and, and vice versa. And nothing, nothing really worked until you happened upon, it's seemingly a version of having people do the veil of ignorance experiment, not knowing when they would be, and to, and to ask people to contemplate the fact that the fact that you are a Red Sox fan or Yankees fan is totally arbitrary. And the likelihood is if you were, had been born in New York or Boston, as opposed to the other way around, you'd probably be a fan of the other team. And something about that and having people contemplate that made them less voracious haters of the other side. Did I fairly summarize that? Yeah. I, I, I was a little surprised by it, honestly, because <laughs> some of the other techniques we tried, like, well, you're all baseball fans, or let's humanize one fan of the rival team. People just <laughs> right. said, no, they're, yeah, I get that they're baseball fans, but they're idiots who root for the wrong team. <laughs> who cares? Uh, and so I was a little skeptical going into this approach, but there, there's something really powerful about replaying the circumstances of your own life and realizing that you could actually belong to a different group maybe even a rival group that you dislike intensely. But for the grace of God, you could be the other guy. You could be, right? I, it's like, um, <laughs> it's like not what's the Godfather line? I could have been a contender. It's like, I could have been my competitor. And once you realize that, you start to see that one set of views that people hold or one group that they belong to doesn't define them. And that makes you a little bit less likely to hate them. So recently, uh, Tim Kundra and I, who did the, the Red Sox-Yankees experiments, we extended this to the gun debate. And we said, okay, let's ask people who are passionate about gun rights to imagine if they would hold different views if they had grown up in Columbine. And we also, we did the opposite for people who are you know, championing gun safety. We said, what if you had grown up in a hunting family? And we found that reflecting on that, that alternate reality was enough to, to get them to actually show less hostility toward the other side. I'm trying to think about how to react to that. Isn't that in many religions, basic teaching? And isn't just basic, obvious uh, truth that people are lucky and you could have been born into a poor family versus a rich family, a black family versus a white family, and that all of this happenstance causes you to have the positions you have and to have the station that you have? And, and if so, why do we have to keep having this discussion, which is a little bit about empathy and understanding there, but for the grace of God, go I. Why do you have to have one for the Yankees and Red Sox debate? Why do you have to have one for gun control? Why do you have to have one for poverty? Why do you have to have one for 
racial equality. It's the same point, right? That that you should have, you know, grace and understanding and empathy and sympathy for these other people and their points of view and moderate your own point of view because you could be them. Yeah, I I think there's some good news and bad news here. The good news is we don't necessarily have to do it on every issue. Uh, we we ran another version of this experiment where we had people on opposite sides of the gun issue uh, reflect on growing up in you know in, in the family that that believed the reverse, and then we actually found that they were less likely to hate the opposing fans in baseball. So we got spillover from one issue to another. The problem is it doesn't last that long. So you're right, religions teach this, but there's a reason they have to keep teaching it because it's not salient to us. And we don't always remember it, especially when you come across somebody whose beliefs you think are hateful and wrong. Um, it's, you know, it's easy to essentialize them and say, okay, you know, that, that person is bad or that person is evil uh, or that person is, you know, is just, it's just stupid. Um, and that's a, you know, in some ways, it's a version of binary bias where, we take all the shades of gray in people and in issues, and we like to oversimplify them because it helps us make sense of a messy world, and it also helps us feel like we're on the side of right and truth. Here's another example of what we've been talking about that you wrote about in a New York Times article. So let's talk about COVID for a second. And you tell the story about conversations you've had with a friend of yours, and the title of your article, consistent with our conversation, is the science of reasoning with unreasonable people. And you describe a friend who you don't identify fully uh, or, or even at all uh, as someone who doesn't believe in vaccinations against the coronavirus. And it, it sounds like you tried to apply some of the things you've learned in putting together this book and from your, your research and expertise as an organizational psychologist to try to get him, your friend, to change his mind. How'd that go? It went better than any of the previous conversations that we'd had where, after, where, where I swore that I would never talk to him about vaccines again because uh, I thought it might ruin the friendship. And uh, your first conversations about vaccines with him was long before the coronavirus. Yeah, it was, I think, four years ago. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't realize that he had such strong oppositional views, but, uh, you know, he started citing all these, uh, these one-off studies and I just said, hey, you know, <laughs> In science, we use a technique called meta-analysis where we accumulate all the studies and then we adjust for the biases and the flaws in them. Like, let, Let's look at what the meta-analyses say. So try to answer my questions with an eye towards explaining to people who may be listening, who have a neighbor or a relative yeah. or a friend like you, like you have, who doesn't want to go get the Pfizer shot or the Moderna shot or the J&J shot. How should they engage in a conversation with a neighbor or a friend to get them to change their mind about that? Do you want to do you want to be the friend or the neighbor? Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I ran to get my two shots, so I'm not going to be very plausible as an anti-vaxer, but I can try. Well, I mean that's that's actually the first problem. I'm not going to call you an anti-vaxer. Oh, right. right. You, you might have some concerns about vaccines, but I don't want to identify you with a group that's completely opposed to them. Right. All right, so Preet You've, uh, I, I understand you've got some hesitations about one of the COVID vaccines or maybe all of them. Yeah, all of them. Look, I'm a, I'm a fairly healthy 52-year-old man. It's not completely true because <laughs> obviously I got my shots before my age group. But I've seen some studies that suggest that there are problems with the vaccines. You also get very sick, I've, I've seen, after the second shot. Uh, and the overall mortality rate is incredibly low. 
And by the way, on top of all that, you know, if lots of other people get the vaccines, I should be protected anyway. So, so why should I go out of my way to put some foreign thing into my body when it's only been a few months? Who knows? I mean, we were told at the beginning of the pandemic that vaccines take years and years. And all of a sudden, government, who is not to be trusted, is telling me that for the first time in human history, we developed not only one, but two, three, four, five vaccines, something that's, that was not doable for polio or any other disease. And I mean, I just, how can you trust that? It's not been long enough, so I'm not going to do it. Wow. There's a lot to unpack here. Uh, you, so let me, let me first, let me, uh, let me try to set the record straight. I, I'm not here to convince you to get a vaccine. Like, I, don't, I don't think that's my place. I think we live in a free country. That's ultimately your decision. Uh, my, <laughs> somebody who cares about you, Freed, I'm, I'm just here to make sure that you're, you're weighing the pros and the cons. Uh, and then making an informed choice. And, you know, I've been trying to figure this out myself, too. It's complicated. Uh, it's not cl as clear-cut for one person as it is for another. And uh, I just, I, I'd love to understand your views better. So I guess the, let's let's start with the safety issue with the vaccines. We're, we're in a fortunate position, I think, that we have both, you know, traditional vaccine and mRNA. Which risk are you more worried about? Is it the old school or is it the mRNA? Um, I don't really have a view. <laughs> I don't really have a view on that. Okay. Look, and uh, any anything that's new, and I think science bears this out. Anything that's new. I mean, you're you know you talk about data, and that's the mode in which you talk to people about stuff. I mean, it stands to reason that new technologies are inherently less trustworthy until more time has gone by. And you know, I don't I don't want to hear six months or eight months or twelve months from now there's something we didn't know about these vaccines, and it turns out that the new method for developing these vaccines causes some other problem further down the line. I mean, I, I'm not anti-science. I think that what I, I'm i saying is is consistent with science. It's not unheard of that we, don't, that we learn about problems, you know, long after, and I don't see the, I don't see the rush. Yeah. I, you know, I'm worried about the risk too. I, I would, I, I would love actually to get a DeLorean or a Tesseract or pick your favorite time machine that could take us five, 10, 20, 30 years into the future so that we really know what the long-term effects are. I think, you know, obviously to stop the pandemic, we're not in that world. We've tried a lot of other approaches. They, they haven't worked. So, you know, it seems like you, you had already said earlier that, you know, if, if a lot of other people get vaccinated, that might help us make progress and that might give you a little flexibility there. I guess what I'm wondering is, how do you weigh the risks of getting vaccinated against the risks of not getting vaccinated? Because one, one thing that scares me personally, and I'd, I'd love your perspective on this, is I don't know either what the long-term risks of getting COVID are. You know, are there neurological conditions that might arise from it? Uh, I know there have been a lot of breathing issues. Uh, and, you know, I, I, personally, I want a time machine for all of it. I want to know, you know, what, what happens to people who get COVID? Um, not just the current long haulers, but real long haul, 10, 20, 30 years down the road. So how do you weigh those two things, given that there's uncertainty about the risks of COVID as well as the risks of the vaccine? So I'm going to come out of character for a second. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I agree with you. That, <laughs> yeah, look, you, you have to think about, so, so my response was going to be, and was before, look, there are risks to taking the vaccine. And the risk of dying from COVID is really, really low. And you, you make a great point, which is those are not the only risks to consider. And you know, to the extent I was going to say, I'm not afraid of something that's the flu. And mostly it's just the flu. Um, I know people got mad at Donald Trump for saying it's just the flu, for, but for, for most people, it appears to just be the flu. You get a fever, maybe some cough, and then you're fine. And I'm prepared to take that risk. And it may not have occurred to me that we don't have enough data about that either. 
and and so yeah, so I I, I appreciate I appreciate not to come not to come out of <laughs> no you can you can it sounds like you're ready to break character so let's let's debrief yeah I I think there are part of what you have done is to take the concerns and the logical reasoning methods of the person you're trying to persuade or at least open their minds and turn it back on them and if that person like I was saying if if I really care about probabilities uh, and it's not just about the unholy injection of some foreign substance into my body, but I'm actually thinking about it in terms of risk, then you introduce other concepts of risk that I may not have talked about, and that will make me ponder it. I think that's- That's the hope, right? I'm, what I'm trying to do is plant a seed using your own, you know, your, your own concerns uh, and your own values to, for, as something for you to think about. And I don't, I don't expect it to change your mind tomorrow. Uh, but you know, I, I think the most important thing is, is the tone, there, right? So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to tell you, hey, I'm worried about this too, right? I, I'm not here to judge you or to threaten your freedom. Uh, I'm just trying to understand your thought process better. And I, I haven't quite figured out exactly where I would draw my line too. And you know, this is a, a conversation where I hope we're both going to learn something. And you know, depending on where you went, I might have, you know, my, my next step might have been to ask you, well, all right, what would the mortality rate have to be uh, or, you know, the transmission rate have to be in order for you to say, I don't care, you know, what we know about the vaccine, I've got to get it. And then th the goal there is for you to at least acknowledge that there are some circumstances where you would change. Right. And then to get you reflect, to reflect on what those others might be, you know, maybe do you have a vulnerable family member that you're worried about? Maybe there's another, you know, another version of this is to say, okay, uh, you know, you're really into freedom. Well, I really want the country to open up. And <laughs> I think the vaccines are the best path to freedom that we have right now. Uh, you know, talk to me about that. The most interesting part of your conversation with your friend that you recited in the, in the Times piece, and maybe this is what gives you an opening, uh, is that you noted that your friend never said he would never, ever get the vaccine under any circumstances. Yeah. That he was very likely not to, which gave you the opportunity to ask him, well, if we change the hypotheticals, if we change the parameters, or we change the data, what, what is the thing that would get you to do that low probability thing? Um, and to me, that's one of the lessons of everything that you've written and that we've talked about, is to ask people, I mean, the takeaway for me is in conversations like this going forward, that the point is to ask people who don't completely close something off to say, okay, well, now that that possibility exists, what are the things that you would have to be shown? What's the data that would have to change and then you make progress. I think if if everyone in America understood that principle, I think we'd have much more open-minded conversations and maybe a little bit less political polarization than we do right now. And I think that, you know, there, there are ways, I guess the, you know, the underlying principle here in motivational interviewing is that when people are considering a change, almost everyone has some ambivalence, right? They, like you said earlier, they have a lot of reasons that they can they, they can marshal and you know maybe parrot a little bit that they've been told by others for staying the course, but they can also generate a couple of reasons for you know okay there might be a time or a place where where I would shift a little bit, and then once you understand those you can you know you can gently inquire about those reasons and you know see if they if they are motivated to talk themselves into changing, and I guess at some level this is really this is a long term investment. Right, you're you're not expecting to radically shift somebody's vote tomorrow, uh, or to get a climate denier to suddenly start advocating for efforts to curb climate change. 
Uh, what you're trying to do is to get people to recognize that their own beliefs are more complicated, more nuanced, and more multifaceted than they realized. And I think that's, that's the starting point for a lot of change. Adam Grant, thanks again for being on the show. The book is Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. Thank you, Preet. This has, as always, been so fun and so thought-provoking. And I love how you take your own experience and both illustrate some of my principles and also challenge and complicate some of my principles. It's it's the perfect balance of, uh, of having a great prosecuting attorney uh, force me to sharpen my thinking and then also having somebody with the curiosity of a scientist to say, hey, I've actually gone out and tried that and here's what happened. Well, that's high praise, sir. Thank you. You've earned it. My conversation with Adam Grant continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So I want to end the show this week by talking about my old office, which you hear me talk about often, U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. It's the place where I've spent more of my career than any other place since I graduated from law school. And anyone who knows me knows how much I love and care about that office. SDNY has had four leaders in four years. It has not had a Senate-confirmed U.S. attorney in a long while. The last Senate confirmation was of me. That's almost 12 years ago. That office, as you know, oversees incredibly important cases of national significance, terrorism cases, cyber cases, corruption cases involving both Democrats and Republicans, and some politically sensitive cases in recent years, including the prosecution of Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, and Trump associate Steve Bannon, at least before he was issued a pardon by the former president. Well, in case you missed the news, I wanted to let folks know that Senator Schumer, the senior senator from New York, has recommended a permanent U.S. attorney candidate to the White House. His name is Damian Williams, who I believe to be an excellent choice. And how do I know that? Well, in 2012, I hired Damian to be an assistant U.S. attorney at the Southern District, and it was an easy decision to make. He has immaculate legal credentials. He went to Harvard College in Yale Law School. He clerked for Justice John Paul Stevens on the Supreme Court. And he also clerked for a guy who you might have heard of recently named Merrick Garland on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, who happens now to be the Attorney General of the United States. He's one of the most impressive trial lawyers in that office. He's now one of the chiefs of the Securities Unit, which handles incredibly complicated and sensitive investigations of financial fraud and crime. But more importantly than all of that, he's a person of integrity. He has leadership skills, and he will believe in the independence of the Southern District of New York like the best of his predecessors. By the way, Damien Williams would also be the first black U.S. attorney in the history of the Southern District of New York. Congratulations, Damien, on the recommendation. I wish you a speedy nomination and an easy confirmation. And congratulations to the Southern District of New York, too. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Adam Grant. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669 247 7338. That's 669 24 Preet. Or 
you can send an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam ozer Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. <laughs>